0: support for father david abernethy and his ministry at the pittsburgh oratory of saint philip neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you the creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the Notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you and enjoy the podcast.
1: Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinos and we're in volume one uh, on page 139. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to be wonderful Lent uh, for us. We're going to be deeply immersed uh, in both the Avrigatinus. We're well into this first volume now. And, uh, and then we're picking up with St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent on Wednesday. And so it's, in terms of spiritual reading, it's going to be very rich and uh, equally challenging. Uh, Climacus will be like a bucket of cold water Uh, thrown on everybody so you prepare yourself uh, to be challenged but it's a magnificent work and so if you can participate or listen to the podcast I think you'll you'll love it Uh, I think this will be my third or so time going through it with a group but first time going through it verbatim so I'm looking forward to it myself and also this it'll be my first time with this new translation uh, that we're using for the group so sort of exciting for me in that regard But tonight, uh, as I said, we're on page 139, halfway down the page, letter C, Abba Isaac the Syrian. And if you remember, we had been talking about uh, spending time with those who are virtuous and seeking out, especially seeking out counsel uh, from those who live the the life of virtue, have great experiential knowledge of the spiritual trials, how to deal with the passions, how to pray. And um, And so we've seen the great value that they place on it, that it's even above uh, importance uh, of in comparison to staying in one cell. Uh, As we know that those who went into the desert uh, really laid greatest importance on solitude and not leaving it, not fleeing from the silence, Uh, but the, the one place where they uh, were willing to relinquish that and felt that it was necessary to was to seek out the counsel of elders, which they would do uh, frequently, and uh, often at great personal cost in the sense of traveling great distances in order to receive it. And, uh, and so that's where we uh, left off last time, we'll be picking up tonight. And then in the next uh, hypothesis, we'll be moving on to uh, obedience as a central virtue. And we'll see that in Climacus as well in terms of its importance in the spiritual life. And then back again to uh, the importance of being under the guidance of an elder, but in a more specific way, in the sense of the dangers that arise, uh, the the cost of ignoring that, and how pride quickly uh, sneaks into the, the heart. And so let's pick up here with page 139. Always, and in all matters, believe yourself to be in need of learning. And throughout the whole of your life, you'll be shown to be wise. So we never get to a point within the spiritual life where we feel that we have mastered anything. Uh, we had laughed a little bit uh, last, a couple of times ago uh, in thinking about the idea of somebody being an expert on the Desert Fathers, that there is no such thing. Unless you, you know you sort of are living the life yourself in perfection, I suppose, but uh, one might have a certain knowledge of their writings, uh, uh but uh, we never uh, get to a point where we've grown in, in such wisdom and perfection that we don't need the counsel of others or that we don't need the guidance of the elders or to be looking at the fathers and and reading their writings, and uh. We have to be careful, I think, across the board, too. I think often we can find in our lives creeping in a kind of conceit of knowledge, uh, where if one has knowledge in one area, uh, suddenly everybody becomes an expert in in all these other fields. And that's true in terms of the spiritual life uh, or in theology. That if somebody has a higher degree in engineering or the, or they're a medical doctor and then or something they can speak sometimes feel that they can speak uh, about other areas you know if they uh, if they're gifted intellectually and uh, and I say that not in a flippant way but in the sense that it can be a danger that. Uh, And that can afflict any one of us, uh, that we become overshore, I think, in our perception of things. And in the spiritual life, that's particularly dangerous, and especially in a more personal way, when we're making our way through our own life, that we can see things from our own perspective with a perfect clarity and see things that are happening on the surface, circumstances about certain surrounding certain situations and we can make judgments of others and we can act in certain ways and then find out after we've done so that we did not see the the full picture and not even a small amount of it in terms of what was going on behind the scenes, what was on people's minds, why they were acting the way that they did. And so suspending judgment uh, becomes very important within spiritual life, especially when uh, looking at others, but also, I think, in sort of considering uh, what we know uh, or, or don't know about a given set of circumstances or about ourselves, even. Uh, St. Paul says, you know, even though my conscience does not condemn me, you know, I still don't trust myself, that we, we can re- often be deluded where our conscience you know, might not be rebuking us, and our pride might have blinded us even in just a subtle way where we can lose our, our path. And that's where we will be in not the next hypothesis, but the one after that, that a person can really reach what seems to be the heights of the ascetical life, the life of prayer, and then pride can creep in and blind them completely, and the fall can be devastating. And, uh, and so this is why they emphasize the importance of constantly learning, not seeing ourselves as being wise and not in need of it. From St. Maximus, just as parents have a great yearning and love for their children, in the same way, the mind by its nature considers its thoughts important. And just as those parents who nurture their children with a sick kind of love, see their children as more accomplished and more beautiful than others, even if everyone else considers them to the most ignorant and most ridiculous of children, so too do fools see their own words, even if everyone else considers the words of a foolish man most ignorant. Despite this, the fool himself sees his words as the most intelligent of all. The same does not apply to the words of the wise man, however, when he seeks to determine if his words are beneficial and true, first of all, he does not trust in his own judgment but appoints other men, wise men, judges of his words and thoughts, so that he does not chance to work and toil without purpose. And from these judges, he is assured of the worth of his words. So uh, tremendous counsel, I I think, that, again, the suspending of of judgment, that no no matter how long one has been studying something, or no, no matter how long one might be practicing something, whether it's prayer or any of the other ascetical practices, that we would never want to be overconfident in our vision of things, but rather expose it to the, the vision of, of those who are wise and the, from whom we seek counsel. And so you know, usually the best spiritual directors are those who are, have been under spiritual direction themselves For decades and continue to remain in spiritual direction knowing their own need that we often are most blind to our own flaws and uh and when it comes to you know figuring out what to do in certain circumstances we often find ourselves circling around things without having a kind of clarity uh, that only another person can offer us and and so again here we are told told that uh that it can make all of our toil to to be something that is without purpose if we trust ourselves too much. The imagery here is interesting. You know, the the parents who think their kids are the greatest or the most athletic and uh, there are often funny little videos. I don't know if you've seen some of them on, you know, YouTube or something like that, where somebody will say something like, this kid's going to be a professional athlete. And then the father throws a ball to him and it bounces off of his head. And it's clear that, you know, and he's 30 pounds overweight at, you know, like 12 years old. It's clear that he's not going to be the great athlete. But parents often will have, you know, this kind of view of their own children uh, because of their love for them, their affection for them, and they'll exalt them in, uh, in their own eyes. And we can do the same thing. And we can do that with ourselves, you know, in the sense of our own words. That's the the pathetic or dangerous thing about it that we can we think that our words are so clever and our our insights are so great as if they've never been made before and uh you know it's uh I remember there's a priest here at the oratory that was amused once where uh someone uh rather well-known individual had converted to catholicism and had been reading pope benedict and who's you know a great theologian and just this tremendous writer great clarity and it was and the individuals you know said that well he found out that this this pope you know or this cardinal ratzinger fellow you know had the same idea as he he had you know that uh, as if it was some new insight and uh and often it isn't, you know, I think things that we think that we see have been seen before and often seen in a much deeper way. And that's often the humbling thing I think about when, when we read the Fathers and when we get to Climacus, it's going to be even more, more true. I mean, the things that we thought we knew about ourselves or our capacity for self-delusion, he unveils uh, he, he doesn't beat around the bush, let's put it that way. He, he's willing to rip off the Band-Aid uh, and reveal reveal the wound to us, if you will. And, uh, and so again, you know, just tremendous counsel here, always appointing someone else to review what it is that you're thinking and saying. Any thoughts so far? So pretty clear, I think, up to this point from the Dronticon. An elder said, whoever goes into a perfume shop, even if he buys nothing, will without fail take upon himself its fragrance. In this manner exactly, one who visits the fathers is benefited. If he should wish to work, they they show him the path of humility, which becomes for him a protective wall repelling the incursion of the demons. So again, beautiful imagery here. And I always hated that about malls. I haven't been in one in probably decades. But if you ever go, remember going in a department store and when you enter, it's usually right there that they have like the perfume section. And it's so strong when you come out of the store, you stink of it. And uh, every once in a while I'll run into a priest too who uses way too much cologne. I don't know if you've had that, that happen where you shake somebody's hand who like douses himself in cologne in the morning, and then you stink of it the rest of the day. But uh, the, so the imagery here is what he's using that when we go into a place like that we carry out with ourselves the, the odor of the perfume and similarly I think when we immerse ourselves in the wisdom of the father's uh that we take something of it with us and often more perhaps than we realize and more than we understand at that moment uh that uh, the the words you know rest within our memories within our hearts and often the truth of them will uh be revealed to us uh in the circumstances of our day-to-day life sometimes in humbling ways we'll come to see what the fathers were saying Uh, what we could not grasp at one time but because uh, experience has unveiled something about our you know our hearts or the kinds of thoughts that we have we begin to see with a clarity uh, what they were saying and that's why I think we can go back through the fathers over and over again as I've mentioned you know this will be in a group like the fourth time that I've gone through Climacus and each time it offers something new and rich it's never as though there isn't some insight to be gained. And the same is true with Isaac the Syrian, maybe even in a more profound way. Okay. If he should wish to work, they show him the path of humility, which becomes a protective wall repelling the incursion of demons. So, you know, this seeking the counsel of, of the elders is also a protective measure for us that one of the ways that demons are going to seek to derail us is precisely this, kind of pride in our own knowledge or our own insights and so we can uh, immediately uh, remove that obstacle when we either live in obedience to another or when we are unveiling our thoughts to another and we've mentioned this before about how uh, when young monks would place themselves under an elder that on a daily basis they would reveal their thoughts to the elder Uh, withholding nothing, simply laying out everything that came upon them that day. In particular, those things that perhaps were most disturbing in order that the elder might provide a healing balm or some insight, a word of his own that would be clarifying. And so the request was often to the elder to speak a word, uh, something that would either instruct or would bring healing. I found this next paragraph maybe applicable to our own day. It's a rather sad reflection upon things, but I think it's interesting to see that even back then, what is true now was true for them. And it sort of points the way for us in terms of how we are to walk. Once a brother visited Abba Felix, accompanied by some laymen who were living in the world. He asked the Abba to tell them a word of benefit to the soul but the elder kept silent since however the brother persistently continued to question him Abba Felix said at last do you want to hear a word yes Abba answered the visitors now a word no longer exists said the Abba because when the brothers would ask the elders and apply that which the elders told them then God would send a word for the spiritual benefit of those asking But now since the brothers ask, but do not apply what they hear, God has taken away the gift of words from the elders and they cannot find any words to say since there is no one to actualize virtuous words. As soon as the visitors heard this, they sighed and said, Abba pray for us. So it's an interesting thing that um, a word is given, Uh, when that word is received and when others seek to apply it. And uh, I often find this, you know, people will complain about priest preaching. And I'm not getting defensive here or anything like that. Uh, But uh, sometimes I think when there is a lack of preaching, that is, you know, it can be because there's something lacking within the priest in his own spiritual life or in his preparation. But it can also become a reflection of the reality within the culture, but within the church itself, uh, that these words of wisdom, if not embraced, then dry up, that the words of wisdom simply do not come out of the mind of the elder, uh, but they come by the grace of God in accord with his providence and uh, God's insight into whether or not these words are going to be received, embraced, and bear fruit. And often those words will dry up uh, as a way of of awakening a desire within the hearts of those who are meant to hear them. Uh, You know, again, there can be a kind of dilettantism even in our reading of the fathers, you know, a kind of curiosity that drives our desire to study. Uh, the fathers and not the desire to live it and to apply it and so it, it always has to be something that's rooted in our desire for God our love for him that we want to hear a word we want to read and understand the wisdom that's put forward here not just to hold it within our mind but really to apply it in our lives to to enable us to struggle more fully um, against the passions, to help us to embrace the grace of God more fully, to pray with a a greater fervor and zeal. And where there is that lack of response, we should not be surprised uh, if all all of a sudden we find ourselves without elders or those that we have maybe don't, their words don't speak to the heart with the same kind of uh, capacity to, to move as what we find in the Desert Fathers. And so in this sense you know brings us to see a kind of radical solidarity that exists between us within the the life of the church you know the the priest has the care of all those in his charge is to be engaged as fully as he can within the spiritual life seeking to live a holy life in order that he might uh, be able to guide others but those who seek that guidance and are, are seeking that word also have the responsibility to pray uh, for those who are in that position but also to be seeking to live it to fo- fostering a hunger and a thirst for the understanding of the scriptures as well as the writings uh, of the fathers and where is lacking on either end i think we find ourselves hobbled in, in the spiritual life any thoughts or comments daniel and then carol daniel he beat you to the button there, Carol. So sorry. <laughs> I just thought it was
2: interesting that to those last two comments jux like juxtaposed to each other, because at first I thought that maybe they didn't like that they were somewhat contradicting each other. But the more you look at it, um, well, so why I thought that was because the first the first comment um right before this one. You know, I thought like you know, oh, that's a very encouraging comment because they're saying that even you know the people who uh, who are visiting the fathers, right? Who are mm-hmm. who are reading them, even if even if they they're like the person who steps into the the perfume shop, right? Even if they didn't buy something, um, it can't help but kind of rub off on you. And then in the next one, it, it kind of seems like it's going the other way. But I think that I think that the the way they work together was that um you know it says says who visits the fathers and who wishes to work um and i you know in the second one it's like there's people visiting this elder and, and they just they just want to hear something smart from him right um they just want they just want to hear something smart it really actually doesn't matter what it is um and and so they they, they did get what they, what they came for eventually, but it was more that like, there's nothing to really say. And and it also fits right back in with visiting, right? The visiting isn't like showing up to, I think that was was the reason I was misunderstanding it even at first. It's not like it's showing up to a lecture series, mm-hmm. right? They're visiting the fathers in a mm-hmm. desert monastery, presumably at least overnight, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like a journey out and a journey back. So the visiting is really one who shows up and just by the sheer fact that you're there is kind of like incorporated into that life for, for even a brief moment. And, um, and that brief moment, you know what I mean? So anyways, I thought they, I just, I just really liked, liked that. So.
1: Yeah. How they play off of each other, which is true. I mean, there is something very hopeful about the first one that, as you said, simply being near the fathers or reading them can bear this fruit that we can be touched by what they say and that eventually it can penetrate the heart so long as we're able to work at it with this kind of humility, as the last sentence says. But there can be a kind of curiosity that drives it. And I think when the fathers gained this reputation, at times there were a lot of curiosity seekers who would seek them out in the midst of the desert. And this is often why we find them going into deeper and deeper solitude, uh, because people were coming out, you know, some genuinely seeking counsel, but others out of curiosity, you know, because of the stories that they would hear, you know, true or not of the fathers that they wanted to see for themselves. It was more like the fathers became a spectacle at that point, rather than, than someone that they wanted to learn from. But even here, you know, there's a humbling that takes place by speaking the truth to them that they say pray for us father pray for us abba you know that might have all that been, that may be all that they were able to gain through it, but maybe it was the most important thing carol
3: um the only thing i wanted to mention was um when i read this passage it reminded me of um don't know if you remember a year or two ago at the holy hour for priests you wrote a passage i think it might have been by Mm Theophan, and um i'm not sure if it was a letter or some sort of correspondence that he was addressing where someone was lamenting the quality of the priest within their parish and the bad Mm -hmm. priest (laughs) and um and he he used kind of strong language um in terms of really saying that the responsibility is borne by the parish as well for the quality of the religious instruction that follows subsequent to their behavior, you know?
1: Yeah. That was one of his, it was very powerful because, you know, part of what he put the part of the questions that he put to them was you know have you did you pray for the priest did you fast did you make sacrifices you know in what ways did you support on a spiritual level the one who's been charged with this and when you did have a good priest were did you heed his words and embrace his counsel or not and uh and so i wouldn't want it you know to be sh- like shifting blame but i i think we want to move away from that you know this this sense of again radical solidarity that exists between us that we you know we don't fast and pray for ourselves alone in this kind of individualistic uh way of looking at the spiritual life as it as if those practices are disconnected from all all the others that we are united to and uh I think it was, I don't know if it was Ephraim the Syrian today that I, I was reading a little bit about, or, or who it was. It was one of the saints. I'm sorry, I can't remember too many. Uh, but, uh, you know, talking about this, that w- specifically that we repent not only on our own behalf, but for all of those who in some way fail to embrace the will, will of God. And we don't do that in a condescending way, but again, acknowledging this kind of radical solidarity that exists within the body of Christ. And so our concern for the the salvation and spiritual welfare of another should be as great as our concern for our own. We don't live in this splendid kind of isolation uh, in our relationship with Christ where where the other slips out of view for us. In fact, the deeper our love for Christ, the, the more our love for others and concern for their spiritual well being should grow. Okay. thought I saw another with her hand up, but I think they're down here. So, oh, soon Mark, there they are. Okay.
0: Yeah, the comment that I was going to make was just really came from the same um, remembrance that Carol had about Theophan and his comment that you read from. And I think the only other thing that I would want to add to that is that most people, myself included, we don't really understand that we really are not doing as well as we think we are. That if we're at least engaged in the spiritual life in some manner and we're doing holy hours and Going to mass and maybe, you know, really even trying to be a daily communicant and improve our prayer life, we we really don't see that we're not doing as well as we could, and um, also just we're not praying for our priests in the way that we should, and we're especially not praying for our priests who are falling. And we get angry with them, but we're not really praying for them in the way that we really need to be. We're not really making sacrifices for them. So that's part of why we have such a failure, I think, in our leadership because we're takers. You know, we want our priests to just um, say good words, words that make us feel good, but not actually demand anything of us. And then in turn, we're not really willing to sacrifice for our priests and do some um, some of that hard work to ensure
1: their well-being. Yeah, I think it's across the board, you know, I think there is this isolation that exists, you know, within the culture in general, you know, our isolation from from each other, uh, lack of sense of tenderness and care for the other and often kind of harsh judgment and suspicion of the other rather than a generosity of spirit towards the other where we think the best of another even when we see something that is, you know, questionable, that we don't immediately uh, look down on them or give a harsh judgment, uh, but rather look upon them with love and compassion. And the more that isolation grows, the so does the suspicion along with it. And then uh, we find ourselves more and more divided. And uh, and so, you know, I think the fathers always stand, you know, I think I've often mentioned the author who had said that wherever there's renewal in the church, there are the desert fathers. And I, I think uh, part of the reason for that is that they do shine a light upon our hearts, you know, uh, as those who have been, you know, share a common baptism and are bound to each other and bound to Christ in this very deep way. And uh we, they enable us to see ourselves clearly without crushing us, you know, that what they give us is, a, again, a healing balm, not to humiliate us, but to, to lift us up. If they shine a light on something that is even jarring, it's not to make us feel small, but to make us cling to Christ, to acknowledge our need for his grace and for his healing. And the more, you know, we move away from this or the more that the, these things are lacking in our life and we're trying to make our our way on the spiritual path alone in that isolation and really not even having the fathers uh, to take hold of, then I think the, there's an incredible void that opens up. And it, it's really, it's a deep chasm. Now, I can't tell you the many people I talk with and... In fact, I had a telephone call today, you know, I think as people look upon what's going on within the life of the church, what happened through the pandemic, and even as we sort of emerge from that, in some sense, too, and how the church has responded to that reality, or what it's doing in the face of financial problems now, and uh, would it, did and continues to do in the face of the crisis within the priesthood and the cases of abuse and uh, poor judgment and and leadership there that people feel that at a loss, they feel a profound disconnect, what they've always loved throughout the course of their life. Even if they were living more at the margins of their life at different points, they always felt connected to the church in one way or another. And now a lot of people are feeling you know a, a disconnect like they've never had before that is i, I either going to lead leave people lead people to a kind of bitterness or a loss of hope or it's going to lead them deeper uh, in their spiritual life to Christ to cling to him and the problem is is there often isn't a sense of how to do that you know especially because of the isolation that exists. Uh, and uh, the lack of sort of connection to the spiritual tradition, theological tradition as a whole. Uh, and so often people find themselves wandering. And priests, too, you know, priests are at this point and where they feel, you know, that it's almost meaningless. I mean, that's how hopeless it has gotten for many, you know, and sort of wondering about the fruit of it and wondering about their decision. You know uh, uh, that they made about becoming a priest, even if they've been one for decades, because of all the things that they've seen go, go on. And but what what brings healing to those wounds? And uh, often I think when they look, they 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 don't see something that they can take hold of, or or because they they experience a kind of emptiness within themselves uh or uh, darkness depression despondency don't know what to take hold of or don't have the will to take hold of so what is it that's going to encourage them to enter into the spiritual life more deeply themselves and uh, and so you know i think it's part of the reason that i you know i go back to the fathers and i think that they are so valuable and i think People are also drawn to things like Eucharistic adoration, you know, it's where they're able to spend that time uh, simply before the Lord, you know, that, and I don't think he abandons us. And I think that's why we find the development of this devotion, particularly in our generation. And it's a good thing, because otherwise I think people would be, feel completely unmoored if they didn't have it. So not, not to depress you, but there's a lot to pray about there and all the reason in the world for us to immerse ourselves in the study of the fathers. Again, not in an individualistic kind of way, but with an understanding that we embrace this not for ourselves, but for the body as a whole. You know, just as in any family where there is a prayer, someone is deeply immersed in the faith, it elevates the whole family, strengthens it. So is true within the church as a whole. So if there is a small group of priests who are, you know, completely dedicated to God or, you know, certain families within a parish or a group of people immersed in the study of the fathers, you know, 40 people or so, that could set a lot of people on fire. You know, not not because everybody's out there preaching the Desert Fathers, but because they, they are filled with a fervor, a desire for Christ that arises out of it. And then all of a sudden you see this life come back where there only seemed to be, you know, a kind of barrenness. The dry bones all of a sudden begin to move. Anthony.
4: Father, how should one pray? On the one hand, you can get all wrapped up in the emotion and trying to tell God what to do even. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, some fathers say, like the uh, desert fathers, Lord, uh, in your mercy, do what's right, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, no, you're familiar right. with it. And, and then there's the liturgical prayer of, of the church. I'm thinking of the publican's prayer book, the morning prayers, Lord have mercy on our church and our Pope and our God-loving bishops, etc. How should one pray?
1: Mm-hmm. Constantly uh, and simply you know i think what we see within the eastern fathers is uh, this you know what, what we find in the jesus prayer or other prayers like it this kind of simplicity and humility you know simply calling out to god in one's need and uh uh and so you know there's a kind of humility expressed in the prayer itself as well as faith you know we are acknowledging our dependence upon god and we call out to him from the depths of our being for help. And the other way is, is, is are, are the things that you mentioned—the sacramental life, what Christ Himself has given to us—is always going to be the greatest source of strength for us. And so, even if there is a poverty there in how it's celebrated or the preaching that is present, that the gift of God is still present to us and the grace. Uh, still is offered to us and so to be faithful ourselves in our participation and reception of that those gifts through frequent confession you know going to mass frequently receiving holy communion participating in the prayer of the church as you mentioned the divine office you know so often that has been seen some as something that priests or religious will do but it's really the prayer of the church so to sanctify time by praying some uh, portion, at least, of the divine office, morning prayer, evening prayer, often seen as sort of the hinge hours of the day, but, uh, but to incorporate it over the course of time, to simplify one's life in order that, uh, again, we might move to become, uh, you know, uh, I forget which author, Avdekimov says, you know, what we want to become is not those simply those who pray, but we become prayer, that we are so formed by that reality, that there is this constant movement of the self toward God through this frequent calling upon him, but also, uh, you know, by clinging to him in the spirit of humility, that our, our, our life becomes a sacrifice of praise at every single moment. And so we have so much that is accessible, but it's having the will and the humility and, uh, the desire to do, as he said, the, the work here, those who wish to work. And so we have to set aside a kind of minimalism that uh, surrounds the spiritual life in our day and so many things, you know, where uh, we want uh, immediate sort of gratification or satisfaction. We have to let go of that and simply embrace it because it's good and true and it's the source of life. And that we have to reorder things that prayer can't be part of the checklists along with other things in our day-to-day life. We have to see it like breathing or, or eating, you know, something that sustains us from moment to moment. And only, I think when we begin to see that, then does it really begin to shape our relationship with God and shape our life as a whole. And that means, uh, it means a kind of internal revolution. And, you know, it's been coming up a lot in my thought, and I think as we head into climate, because it's going to emerge even more, that we can't sort of live in lockstep with the world around us. That the gospel is a revolutionary text, and the, the cross turns our world upside down in terms of what we understand as love, and how to, you know, what where our identity is rooted as human beings, what it's found in, where our true value and dignity is found as human beings. It's found in the love of God, who's willing to sacrifice all on our behalf and to give us all. And that our response is to be equal in kind, complete, withholding nothing. And somehow that has to be communicated, you know, within families, how families live their lives, but it also has to be communicated from the pulpit and by, by how priests Lord, live their Lord, lives, Lord, too. Stop buying Russian. is tainted. Okay. Oh, we got a little feedback there. Sorry. Okay. Well, why don't we move on here to just this final little section from St. Ephraim, the Assyrian. Never refuse the counsel of holy men, even if you are learned for this too, is one of the fruits of knowledge. So one of the fruits of knowledge is to understand that you do not know everything. And so always be willing to receive something from from another and not simply those that hold this exalted position in our own minds, but from everyone that we encounter, Uh, no no matter what position they might hold in life or station, they might hold in life, they might be very simple individuals, but often from simple individuals come the deepest truths and, uh, and the things that we need to hear or things that are corrective. And, uh, and so, you know, there, there, again, there can't be any kind of condescension on our part. We have to be in this kind of uh, receptivity, place of receptivity. Eric Chastain.
0: Surely, Father, we we can't, um, in our world being full of heretics, apostates, um, and non-Christians, we can't have the same attitude towards those people that we do to Christians or priests or whatnot with regards to what they say, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we can. And I think one of the things, you know, for us, truth is a person, and the spirit also, the spirit of truth blows where it wills, and God will act in accord with his own wisdom and his own providence, and so often a truth will come to us from unexpected sources, and I think we have this tendency in our day to want to categorize you know, things, uh, we are very comfortable with boundaries because they make us feel safe and secure. And we are uncomfortable with uh, the boundaries of the kingdom, which have the dimensions of God himself. And so God is going to act in the way that he sees fit. And will use others and circumstances in, in any way, even if it means turning our world upside down, to bring about our our salvation and we can't have our give i think give ourselves the luxury of cutting off you know certain sources of that truth for us the truth is one and god certainly can act through uh an apostate as you said as as through anyone else now certainly you know i think what we are being shown here is that there is a, a value in staying close to those who are virtuous and those who've lived the life of this experiential knowledge that, you know, that we don't distance ourselves from that as though it's insignificant, but in this also we don't hem God in, you know, in the sense as, uh, as though he's incapable of acting in any way that he sees fit. And so the gospel we had not too long ago was where, you know, the, the apostles want to, uh, sort of order this uh, this exorcist uh, to cease and desist all activity immediately because he wasn't part of their group. You know, we tried to tell him to stop it, and he didn't listen to us. And Jesus said, you know, he who is not against us is, is with us. And I think we often see it in the same way. He who is not with us is against us so if they're not a part of our group then they're immediately to be held in suspicion and we, you know we if we go back to the old testament we look at moses you remember the the two that stayed back in the camp they began to prophesy and you know it made people pretty uncomfortable and they tried to shut them down too and moses said you know would that all in, in israel were were prophets you know had received this same gift and uh And so, you know, I don't want to make it sound as though the the truth is unimportant or where we seek counsel is unimportant, uh, because it is important. We believe in a revealed religion. God has made himself manifest to us. uh, And and so we place extraordinary value uh, upon it all. Uh, But again, you know, that God is not bound by these 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 things and uh, and will not be bound by them either, and you know we hear in one case after another in what we start out here in the Evergatinos, where you know a person is moved to repentance, and we're, we're told, you know, at that moment, you know, even if they lived a desolate life and they became apostates or they left the monastery, and yet they are brought back to see the truth and they turn back to God immediately, a flood of grace comes upon them of God's mercy. And we're over and over again, if you remember, we're given these stories that even if they never made it back to the monastery, and I think the authors do this on purpose, you know, they never, they die on the way back to the monastery uh, before they could really even change the external realities of their life, that what is most important is the act of God's grace within them that moves them to repentance, and that repentance is what opens the, the door to his grace and to his healing. And uh, I don't think we want to place anyone outside uh, of that, regardless of where they might be or where we might see them to be. You know, I think our confidence in the truth uh, should make us fearless in that regard. Not, uh, not reckless, but, you know, fearless in the sense of our willingness to be able to engage anyone wherever they might be. And, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned here a number of times that, uh, you know, after, you know, maybe 15 or so years of being a priest, you know, I went back to study, and studied psychoanalysis. And you know, those with whom I was studying, you know, a large number of them didn't have faith. Some did, and and many were atheists. And certainly Freud himself was an atheist. But I don't think that I could have gone into that, and you know, maintained my own identity and been be at peace with what I believed in faith and be able to enter into this dialogue with all these other individuals who are studying the same thing without having this belief in Christ and this, this kind of confidence in uh, his guidance and that the truth is one. And so that I could learn things from these individuals who are engaged in this practice of analysis and psychotherapy over the course of years to see the beauty of it while also recognizing its limitations and not have to reject it wholesale because of those limitations. And if we, aren't, if we don't have the capacity to do that, we're going to live in a very narrow world And our our vision is going to narrow and become more and more myopic. And, And I think there's a lot of reasons that we shrink back to that position. But I think the closer that we draw to Christ, then we become less fearful of the other. And having this need to protect us, protect ourselves. And we can see it happening within the church itself. You know, wherever these little camps begin to develop and, you know, suddenly, you know, people are, you know, pushed into them and marginalized in one way or another. And there's kind of safety and security that people feel in that. But also when, whenever that takes place in an extreme form, uh, I think there's a loss of vision and the faith life can begin to be lived out. In, in controversy constantly or in that tension rather than the, uh, a kind of focus upon Christ uh, that is driven by, by love, desire that we hear the fathers speak of. Because, you know, if we're immersed in controversy all the time, then we don't have to be focused upon what's going on within our own heart. You know, and I think what we learn from the fathers is that you know, there's enough to deal with within our own heart and the error, and the heresy and the apostasy, it can be found a plenty with, you know, two inches underneath the the chest where we don't have to be looking for it around us or fighting it until we've fought it, you know, even, you know, we're finding somebody like Catherine of Siena, you know, or other saints, you know, when you've shed blood or when you've really entered into the faith in this radical way, then you can criticize the church. I think when when there's a kind of purity of heart. And even then, I think you would be the rare individual because there's always a a kind of danger with that. And the evil one will use it. You know, he'll bring forward things that are true, are problematic, but he'll set us against each other and seek to divide us and or to distract us from Christ himself.
0: I guess I was just thinking uh, another time you had said that if, I mean, this is with the Theophan group, so this is all mm-hmm. <laughs> mixing things, but um, that we should run far, far away from from places where they're are really crazy and intense, um, uh, aggressive atheist
1: types. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's a good good point. And you know, I think he's if he's speaking to Anastasia, who's a young woman, and who lived within this very fa- faithful household, but had moved to the city to Moscow, and there she had you know been surrounded by you know, those he had described as progressives in his day, you know, those who are calling in question faith altogether. And here she was seeking to grow in her faith. And as he wanted her to keep her focus upon Christ and not get caught up in the agitation that uh, was being created by her interactions with these individuals. And so there is a kind of wisdom in that council but it's not the same, I think, as some of the things I've been talking about, you know, that here he was trying to protect someone who was growing in her faith, but yet was very young and realized that there was a vulnerability there. And so, again, you know, I'm not saying that we would expose ourselves, you know, uh, in this kind of haphazard to everything within the world, but neither are we to be filled with fear you know, I think the more that we're immersed in Christ, he who is truth, fear should vanish from our heart. Ashley Cashel from Arizona.
3: Sorry, I'm not on my like, video right now, um, but I just wanted to comment on something that I have noticed like in my own life and then um, in just friends and stuff like that is that uh like according to this topic that we're talking about right now um I think that we as a society and as like faithful lack uh, like a spirit of discernment mm-hmm. um, and we don't put that into practice so it's like if I know my faith um I wouldn't necessarily be worried too much um about the influence of other people's opinions and I would a- be able to better and more clearly judge um like the truth of what they're saying without worry of being um, I guess like having my intellect or my my faith life um, muddled in any way Uh, because I mean we consider origin for example to be um, heretical in certain instances but like his writings on the Eucharist are beautiful Uh, and prayer is also very like they're very amazing and so it's like I don't know I don't think exposing ourselves to uh, certain people or groups is necessarily that dangerous as long as we don't become like enmeshed with them, I guess if that makes any sense,
1: right. Well, you know, I think part of the struggle for us, too, and we see how different it is from the fathers is that you know we we talk about knowing our faith. And we often I think we identify that with having a certain knowledge of certain you know the teachings of our faith, creedal, what we believe, theology, uh, doctrine, again, And rather than seeing faith in the way that the fathers did, as well as somebody like St. John of the Cross, you know, that it was a kind of knowing, but that arose out of this experience of God, uh, a comprehension, dark and obscure, but very personal and not simply notional, but real, concrete and tangible. And so what we find in the fathers and the, the writings uh, of the saints is this focus on purity of heart, that it's in through purifying the heart through the life of prayer, the ascetical life, the ordering of the desires toward God, that, that one purifies the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, the noose that the fathers use in Greek in order that we might see things, discern things with a kind of clarity that we might comprehend divine divine things as well as the truths about ourselves. Uh, But I think in the West, we often will intellectualize the faith and the faith life. And so even our entrance into it often begins with, almost like in an apologetical kind of way that we're thinking about how we're going to argue about our faith. And if we can articulate that faith very well, and we can argue it very well, it means that we know our faith and we're living it. Well, that might not be, may or may not be true. You know, we might be able to articulate it very well, but we might know nothing of Christ and we might not have purity of heart either. And, but, you know, the, the one cannot exist with the others. The fathers are very clear that, you know, without this purity of heart, theology becomes demonic theology. You know, that we're being guided not by the spirit of truth, but by the evil spirit. When we, when we are, our, our hearts are not focused upon God, where we're not driven by this desire and love for him. And we, we really need to move away from that, even in terms of our formation It really, it can't, it's not meant to be butterflies and all the other garbage that sort of emerged in the sixties, but it really has to be focused upon Christ, the life of prayer, you know, of the ascetical life. And I think this is where we've become derailed in the sense of losing sight of the fact that Christianity is an ascetical religion, that we have to exercise it. We have to seek to embrace the grace that God gives us in a way that it begins to, form and reform our hearts, and if we turn it into something intellectual, then we're, we're living it out at the margins, and it's not, going to bear, it's not going to bear fruit for us, and this is where reading the fathers should really set our hearts on fire, because I think they lay out this clear path for us, but also a path that leads us into this deep intimacy with God. Again and again, you know, we said, we, we hear in them this emphasis upon the importance of desire. You know, they didn't have this hatred of the body, this negative anthropology. Some of them probably fell into that, uh, of course, but really what drove their asceticism was the desire to give themselves over fully to God. And that if this asceticism is not driven by love, it's not going to bear fruit. In the same way, you know, our study of the faith, if it's not formed and shaped by love of Christ, is not going to bear fruit. Anthony.
4: Father, um, I'm wondering if fear is at the root of this in a few ways. One, our American experience is, especially in the last, well, 100 years maybe, oh, you Catholics are just nothing. And so we've always been on the, often have been on, on the defensive end. Another is that some of us have been led terribly astray um, by Protestants or cult-like Protestant groups. And the fear of being led astray, again, is a psychological problem. Another is, is the way our church may presents its theology or certain proponents present it, such as Oh no, fear no indifferentism. We cannot have any indifferentism, which makes me think. Okay, I love the Orthodox, for example, but I don't want to fall astray of the indifferentism. You know, mm-hmm. and so um, how much communion can we have uh, without saying I'm going to be better than the Pope and just deciding for myself what's what's good? Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing is that God is so big and so massive. And maybe the devil or our own fear can turn that bigness and otherness of God into something monstrous that will take us and eat us up. And like to borrow from what Jesus, our Lord said to St. Peter, you're going to be told to go somewhere where you don't want to go. Right. So I wonder if maybe fear is at the is at the heart of a lot of this.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so. And I think a lot of great insights there. And I think you know, when there isn't this kind of formation that we've talked about, where there is this focus upon Christ, this desire, this love for God that then drives us in the way that we live our life and, you know, the kind of conversion and repentance that leads us toward him. Then, you know, when we are guided by that, we will shift to something to hold on to. And where we, you know, if we can shape it with our own minds, and if we can understand it, then it does feel safer. And God seems to be less of a threat to us. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, nobody wants, to, <laughs> nobody wants that to happen, you know, and for the reasons that you, you said, you know, because all of a sudden we have to dethrone ourselves and allow God to guide and direct us. And so even in our practice of religion, we are going to want to free ourselves from that. And so we, we will create, you know, what has we will take what has been revealed to us and we'll refashion it till it becomes something comfortable and more palatable for us. And we'll structure it, we'll compartmentalize it, and we'll pull it out when we need it, and we'll put it away when it's inconvenient. You know, but, you know, God forbid that we, you know, we should allow him to guide and direct. So like I said, it didn't make much sense. God forbid that we should allow him to guide and direct us. But that's pretty much what we say. You know, that's what, what, what we're doing. And uh, I think the fathers cut through that. You know, they don't allow us that that luxury. They keep pulling us back over and over again in this relentless way to this, you know, vision of what it is to be a human being now in light of what has been revealed to us in Christ. And they're willing to really let that be jarring for us. And that's what I'm saying, when we get to climb, Because put on your seatbelts because, you know, he's going to take us through it. And I, I guarantee you, you know, we've, we've, you've seen how some of our groups have gone here and the discomfort that is created when we when we get to climb, because it's going to do the same, but even more so, for us. But in a good way, you know, in the sense that it it pulls us out of that comfort zone and allows us to to listen, compels us to listen in a, a deeper way, and uh, and that's where we, perhaps we hear what we need to hear, if we allow that to happen often enough. Okay. That's uh, 8.35, and so I'm not going to keep you here more. I'm going to try to keep us to the hour so it stays fresh, especially since we're having two groups a week. And uh, so thank you again. Wonderful comments and questions as always. And uh, don't feel, you know, if you can't make it to one or either of the groups, you know, every week, don't worry about it. That's what the podcasts are for. And if you feel that you can only pop in every once in a while, it's, it's good too. It's always good to see you. And uh, I think all the groups tend to stand on their own in terms of what they offer. Uh, so, and uh, spread the word, you know, about John Climacus too, so people can jump in. Uh, we can fit up to 100 people here, and we're not pushing a limit yet. So, okay, why don't we close with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father. And with your spirit. Now God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be God. Just Thank one you, final Lord. comment before you go. You know, asceticism can be a form of a defense mechanism. Uh, it can be a positive one. It can even bring a kind of order to our life. <laughs> but it can be something that we take hold of because our life feels chaotic and disordered. And so it is important that I think we have the lens of the fathers to look through so that we can examine whether or not our asceticism is being guided and directed by love and by desire for Christ. And it's not as if it is being driven by, you know, a kind of fear or it is more of a defense mechanism that has no value. It might be what we need at the time, but ultimately we want to, to be embracing it out of this deep love and desire for Christ. And the deeper the asceticism becomes, the deeper the prayer becomes, the greater the freedom should become to freedom from fear, uh, especially. And if we don't see things going in that way, that's where we need, I think, to examine. Our life, and I think that's also why I want you all to be as free as you want to be, and uh, bring up questions or concerns about what it is that we are reading, uh, because some of it is jarring, and if some of it will make us uncomfortable, and I'm always willing to spend the time to unpack it and to read it in a discerning fashion, discriminating way, uh, so that we're not just. Uh, you know, receiving it with a kind of lack of understanding. Because, I, you know, it's not meant to be something that's paralyzing for us, but rather healing and freeing. Okay, so never never hold back and putting things forward or writing me about them, you know. Okay. All right. Have a great week, everybody. Wonderful Lent. Should be Lent all year long. It's a (laughs) joyful period. (laughs)